Hey everyone, this is Neville here. Before starting this week's episode, I want to talk about two things really quickly. Number one, the Authentic Lawyer Project. If you haven't had a chance to, check it out. It's where we're sharing the best ideas and original voices from the world of law, psychology, tech, science, marketing, entrepreneurship to help you build your law practice your way. And we're doing this without any copyright at all in any of the stuff we post. It's completely free for you to use within your own law firm. If you want to repurpose it, do whatever you want with it, even commercially, make money off of it if you'd like. We're giving these ideas away for free. You can check it out on blog.buildyourbook.org, two short posts per week. All right, and number two, we are opening up registrations for the Build Your Book Academy for January 2022. We've had multiple sold out cohorts this past year. We worked with dozens and dozens of you from literally all across the world to help you change the way you look at your practice, the way you look at your career, the way you look at your branding and your business development efforts. And the results have been transformative. So if you've been on the fence, I know it's New Year's coming up pretty soon. If you are looking to make a big change, consider joining and applying for these eight-week intensive cohorts. Go on to buildyourbook.org slash academy. And if you apply before December 31st, the prices are going to be around $500 less. So we're going to be increasing prices starting January 1st. We've just been always oversubscribed to these things. We've had uh, sold out cohorts in the past. So if you are on the fence, now is the time to apply. Let's get started with the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Build Your Book podcast. This is your host, Aaron Bear and Double Tank. Every week, we bring to you stories about the legal profession to help lawyers build a better book of business, a better practice, and a better life. Let's get started. Welcome back to the Build Your Book podcast. And as always, another great guest today. We've got Josh Calderon with us. He worked in big law and then left several years ago to start his own firm. Uh, he's the founder and principal lawyer at Calderon Law Professional Corporation. Josh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Aaron Devil. Thank you so much. Such an honor um, to be with you guys. I think this is my first podcast ever. So um, I'm really pumped to, to see where the conversation goes. Thank you. Amazing. Well, we're so glad you joined us. So I want to start with, you know, how you got to where you are today. So, you know, you graduated from law school, I think back in 2011, and then you worked in big law for just over four years. Tell me about sort of what your time in big law was like, and then what sort of made you think, you know, maybe I want to do something else. Yeah, great question. Um, I'd say typical law school experience in that, you know, you hear about OCIs, you, you hear about Bay Street, very typical Canadian law school experience. So went for that, was lucky enough to get a position um, at a big law firm. Great. I, I'm actually a person, I'm not anti big law, which, which um, a lot of people who, who privately message me online think I'm anti big law. I'm not, I, I think it was a wonderful place to start my career. It was um, some of the hardest days for sure, long hours, um, stressful environment sometimes, but it, I, I really look back on that time fondly because it really set my career up so well. After about four years of practicing as an associate, I partnership was not immediate, but it also wasn't years away anymore. It was probably like two, two maybe three years away, and I had um, a moment where I thought, okay, am I am I all in on this or not? And after a lot of soul searching, a lot of introspection, I decided that my my calling, my my passion, my destiny, whatever you want to call it, it was outside of, of that environment. And that's when I took the plunge and decided to do other things. I resonate a lot with that. Uh, I'm definitely not anti-big law either. And I think I've been pretty outspoken about things in the legal profession, but, but you know, those are big law, small law, doesn't matter. You know, there's lots of big firms doing some amazing stuff. There's obviously lots of small firms doing some amazing stuff. And vice versa. And I'll, and I'll agree with you, you know, having started my career in big law at a similar size firm to yours, you know, I was lucky. I grew really good mentors. I learned a ton. I met a lot of people, whether it was clients or other lawyers, you know, that was, that was important. And, and like you said, though, with partnership getting closer, I had the same struggle on my end, you know, a lot of introspection, a lot of soul searching. And I almost turned down partnership. I was, I was pretty close. Um, I'm curious on your end, what was that soul searching and introspection process like? Uh, were you listening to and talking to a lot of other people? You know, were you reading a lot? Like, what, what did that look like? Because I think so many lawyers 
are going through that moment of introspection and soul searching, whether now or in the past? And I'm sure you must have some advice for them. Yeah, great question. I think COVID actually has been an accelerant, a catalyst for that, because that generally speaking, people are rethinking where does work fit into their lives? Where do they want to be geographically um, for family, for work, for pleasure? I think that's actually been a positive outcome out of COVID that we're, we're really th taking stock of our lives and thinking about what makes sense for us. So um, back to your, your, your question about me and my introspection, it was actually really isolating in that for a long time, I was debating between um, staying within my law firm or going, and I couldn't share that with many people. A, because um, I couldn't share that with partners where I worked because I was always afraid that they kind of make the decision for me, right? They would write me off. Um, where If I shared that I was debating between my next path or what I was going to do, that they were going to say, like, this guy doesn't have it, so we're going to get rid of him. And I didn't want that to happen. So... I, I was very hesitant to share with anyone who I worked with. And then outside of that environment, it's really, it's hard to find people who understand what you're going through. So I look back on that introspection. It was very isolating and that I, I wasn't able to confide in, in many people. And I had to almost withdraw internally a bit to really try to figure out who I was and what I wanted to be, what I wanted my work to be. And it was more of those not one-on-one -on -one interactions. It was more like you said, books, uh, podcasts, videos, um, things where I could consume in silence secretly and not give away what exactly my what my intentions were. And, and um, the outcome of all that was that I decided, hey, this is the time to jump ship. I don't trust myself to leave later on when at the time, I now have a, um, a three-year-old son, but at the time I didn't, I didn't have a mortgage. So I knew those sorts of obligations were coming down the pipeline and i thought you're either going to jump now or you're not going to jump later i kind of had that that um that moment where i knew i had to either get in or get out and i decided to get out oh that that, that makes a lot of sense and, and when you talk about that being sort of almost a lonely or isolating journey i resonate with that a lot because i think there sometimes are or, or it's often you know you don't have that environment at a firm where you can speak openly and candidly with people and say you know hey i'm thinking about leaving <laughs> What do you think I should do? And I think, you know, having that mentor, whether they're at the firm or more likely not at the firm, you know, can be really helpful, especially a, a good mentor, someone who actually understands you as a person and not just somebody who's giving, you know, advice from their own vacuum. And I remember a conversation I had with a really good mentor of mine at my old firm who actually said, you should leave and start your own firm. And I was really taken aback at first. I'm like, really? Like, and he's like, no, no, no. Like, you'll be way happier. It'll be way better for you. And, 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 you know, it was coming from someone I trusted, um, but who I, who I also knew understood it from my perspective, understood it with a lot more wisdom, you know, from years of experience and having seen others do this and who would be there as a champion. And that I think for me was, was really helpful because I think for a lot of people, they didn't see the world the same way I did. And Josh, I'm guessing similarly, there are lots of people who probably thought you were crazy. Um, and I'm curious, what was the reaction from friends, family, colleagues when you decided to leave? It, I, I love that you shared that because it just shows whoever was that person who told you that, Aaron, I love that they did that because they were thinking about things from your perspective, right? Like they were a partner. I think you said they were a partner. Is that right? They were. Yeah. So they decided to take the partnership path. So they are suggesting a path that they themselves didn't take. And to have the empathy, the, the you know, putting your own ego and interests aside and to say, look, if I was Aaron, this is what I would do. I think that takes a lot of courage. And and whoever that person is, I, I applaud them because it's not easy to put yourself in someone else's position and give give that type of insight. Um, for me, luckily, most people around me were very supportive. Of course, people thought I was, some people at the firm thought I was crazy because I was giving up um, quite a bit. Like the financial rewards, as you know, they go up quite a bit over time. You know, your, your salary goes up every year. You're getting more clout status in the firm. So they saw it as me. Some people viewed it as me wasting my my talent, my potential. Not many, but but a couple. But most people, luckily, were very supportive of, of me. And, and I'm so thankful. I don't know what I would do if, if, if people very close to me weren't supportive. But I think 
in conversations with me, with me, they knew that I had thought about it for a long time. And in my head, I knew that even if it doesn't work out, I could get a job somewhere, right? I could kind of pick that back up and, and go down that path again. So I was very convinced. I was very, had so much conviction that it was the right path for me. So um, I had so much support, which, which really helped me transition to next steps. Yeah, kudos to you for taking that that plunge because I know that that's not easy, and I definitely second guess that decision on my end a lot. Um, uh, the reality is uh, never going back. I think the reverse way. I, mean, I do a lot of work with the big firms uh, through through Build Your Book and through For All Academy, but certainly I think you know when it comes to the day to day stuff, if I'm not a consultant, I'm probably better off on my own or at a small firm just for the way I like to work. But I'm curious, Josh. You know, I want to talk about when you went solo, and I'm going to turn it over to Dowell shortly as well. But I'm really curious, what did you think? going solo was going to be like? And then the follow-up question I have for you there is, what was it actually like those first weeks or first months? What did I think? I just posted this today, funny enough, on LinkedIn. Like the 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 pre, um, not, not I was going to say preconception, the misconception that the legal work is predominantly what you do, right? Because as an associate at a law firm, I was responsible primarily for executing on the little deliverables for clients, right? That's 95% of what I did and maybe 5%, you know, involved in some random committee or something like that. And I thought that's what practicing, having my own practice would be. There was going to be that heavy predominant focus on practicing law. And I had to get to a place where I would do 95% practicing law, 5% other. And over time, I had to learn the hard way that it's not like that at all. The, the practice of law is just one piece of the puzzle. And first of all, you're not practicing law without getting clients, right? So you have to focus on building the pipeline and getting that going. And you got to focus on software and making sure your tech is set up and vendors and all the different parts, the different components of a business. So it was a, 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 awakening a learning process for me to learn what running your own practice is about what running a business was about and quickly i realized that unless i got out there and and mixed it up with people not for the purpose of getting a file necessarily but just to have conversations make make people aware of what i was doing figure out what they were doing that's without that it was never going to lead to any sort of book of business right it was never going to lead to a place where i could could hire a junior so it, it was that really learning a business, learning what, what's involved in, in operating a business that was the major education that I had that those first few weeks, first few months of being a solo. That is really the best way of, it, it's almost like a crash course MBA. And I, in your LinkedIn post, you refer to the E-Myth uh, by, by Michael Gerber, who talks about the difference between working in the business versus working on the business. And there's quite a bit of a distinction there. And I wonder if you can clarify that point, because even if you're at a, at a big firm, there's an element of you building the systems to help you have a, a bigger book of business, greater flexibility, freedom, autonomy, that I think listeners would, would uh, value understanding the difference between. Right. Yeah. So the I'm glad you brought that up. I didn't mention that in the post, but you're exactly right. The in the business versus on the business. So when you get started as an associate fresh out of law school, you unless you really have really outstanding family connections and are bringing clients, chances are you're going to be doing the the work or the, the, that the law firm produces. So you're working on agreements, you're working on drafting closing documents, you're doing the closing, all that if you're a corporate practitioner. Whereas what you're talking about, Devil, is you, you're not you're stepping away from that and you're thinking, okay, what else is involved in that actual client deliverable behind the scenes, right? So if the client deliverable is the, you know, plate of spaghetti that the, that the person at the restaurant gets, what goes on behind the plate of spaghetti that goes into the plate of spaghetti, it, whether it's the, you know, the kitchen, whether it's managing suppliers, whether it's the decor at the restaurant. So really looking at it holistically, um, the forest for the trees. And I think that, I'm a, such a big proponent of building a, a book of business that I, I can't, I, I beat that drum every chance I get on the internet in person. When I, when I talk to people, it's just the best position to be in. Um, if you want maximum flexibility, um, the, the autonomy to one day be able to say, okay, I'm going to take this and leave, go down the street, leave, start my own practice. 
Um, it just gives you a level of freedom that you, you're not going to get when you just focus on the plate of spaghetti. Maybe that, you know, maybe that metaphor is not making sense. It's making sense in my head. But, no, it's making perfect sense. Yeah, yeah it's, it's just the idea that, that you could focus on spaghetti your whole life and, and delivering that product. There's nothing wrong with that. If that's really your passion and what excites you, there is a place for that, that type of practitioner. But if you're, if you're, if someone were to ask me, how do I set myself up in case I ever have a disagreement with the law firm I'm working at, in case I'm never happy with my compensation, in case I want to make more money and I, and I don't have to want to wait for yearly compensation committee reviews and see how many units I get this year, I want, I want to do something different. Well, what I would tell them is, is what's your book of business? How's that pipeline going? Is there a chance for you to go somewhere else? Is there a chance for you to start a solo practice? And then um, have have that be the the way to really achieve your goals. I love it. And and what I like the most about your your post on LinkedIn about this very topic is that you think the ratio is more like 35% legal work, 65% is you building all those systems in place. Are you do you have a book of business? Are you doing business development work? Do you have the software, the tools? Do you have the suppliers? All of that stuff, because that's the that's all the, the secret sauce. Or to, to use your spaghetti example. The kitchen is something you can't really see when you go to your favorite restaurant, but it's the, it's the kitchen, it's the chef and all of the stuff that's within it, you know, the, the, the knives and the cutting boards and all that stuff that's making the thing. And too many people ignore that. They're just thinking that, okay, if I strike out on my own, I'm going to work eight hours a day and I'm going to, you know, pocket all that myself. But the other thing I also really like uh, is you give the secret sauce away. A couple of a couple of weeks ago, I think you made an incredible post. You said the secret formula for getting clients: you don't need a private school diploma, you don't need a country club membership, you don't need to go out drinking three times a week. What you do need is good work, caring about your clients, and putting yourself out there. A lot of people that we talk to are quite afraid of putting themselves out there, and they're stuck within this paradigm uh, of, well, I, I need to be at a restaurant, you know, every single day schmoozing. And that's the only way for me to grow my book of business. And I wonder what you would tell them and, and maybe your own journey of subscribing to the old paradigm of getting clients and what it was like for you to find this new paradigm for getting clients. Yeah, great, great question. Um, wow, that's like really, my brain is really going on like different angles. Like this is such a, I'm such a, passionate speaker about these topics on, on, on LinkedIn. I really have found my voice um, being like this ambassador for solo practitioner, small law firms. And part of that mission of mine is to debunk myths about solos because Aaron will attest to this. Aaron, in law school, what was the perception of solo practitioners? Was it favorable or not favorable? It certainly wasn't favorable. And I think, you know, no one in the career development office was ever saying, you know, your dream is to be a sole practitioner. I think everyone has this belief that you need to work at a big firm. And, and I do believe like nobody should start as a solo practitioner. I think that's just a lawsuit and a disaster from a client standpoint waiting to happen. But I think a lot of the view is, oh, these people couldn't make it. They couldn't cut it. They, they, they couldn't do that. And to your point, Josh, it's definitely not something being talked about in a, in a, in a positive way to the extent it was even being talked about at all. Yeah, exactly. And I, I agree with you. I think um, I have a future post talking about that, that like the, the idea of starting fresh out of law school to solo practitioner, which which I don't think is ideal um, for, for par partially because of the reasons you mentioned. It wasn't look favorable. Um, I talked to a lot of doctors, you know, family medicine has every profession I feel like has this kind of angle, this, this, this part that people, it just doesn't look as people don't look as favor favorably upon and solos are like that. It was never talked about that one day you can start your, your own practice and what that means. And here's a course on, on building your own um, solo practice and what that means. So I I'm, I'm so passionate about this because the idea, and, and you guys talk about this on the podcast all the time, which I love that they, the, the conception, which I had too, that you had to go drinking, you had to have, family connections. Um, Devil, I think, you know, you, you and I have spoken about this offline, the idea of limiting beliefs, right? These, these self-perpetuating myths that we have about what it's supposed to be, right? I need to go to um, 
private school. I need to have, you know, the golf course membership. That's how, and maybe certain people develop business that way. Certainly I'm not saying it doesn't exist, but there's a way where you don't have to do that, where you could do it more authentic to yourself, which is, you know, posting on LinkedIn, talking to people, going to industry events. There's, there's ways to develop clients that don't involve those, those preconceived notions that actually will, will, you know, when you do something that you don't fully believe in, right? If you don't believe, if you don't like whining and dining clients, you don't have to whine and dine clients. And if you try doing that and that's not you, you it's really going to cause a lot of friction. And I think that's going to come out in the interaction with the client because deep down you're going to feel like, oh, I don't really want to be doing this. Whereas if you do develop clients in a way that is true to you, really does come from a place of you being interested, I think that's the gold. I think that's the, 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 the sweet spot where you find a place uh, – a pipeline, a, you know, you really dig roots deep into a certain method of, of developing clients. I think that's really where, where um, true success comes from when you can really build a nice book of business. That's a good point. Uh, a, a lot of people do think that, well, I need to be out there all the time. This is the only way I can do things, but you're kind of challenging that paradigm. And I'm really curious, what was your first, you know, quote unquote sale like? Because uh, one of your other uh, popular trending posts is where you talk about how you your first sale was $500 and you were ecstatic. And now routinely you're making $50,000. And by the way, kudos to you for sharing numbers themselves. I think a lot of people sh are sharing numbers that openly, but you talk about these things and you talk about how that first client giving you $500 was, was you were ecstatic about it. And now they're paying you $50,000 and you know there's no chip off your shoulder, but you're focusing on this fair trade. It feels good. How did you how did you get to this place? Does it still feel like an imposition when you're sending out that invoice? Do you do you struggle with asking for the sale? What's just just tell us about maybe your first sale and how your your limiting beliefs, how you overcame some of your limiting beliefs to where you are now, where you can routinely ask for these these big amounts and and get these sales. Yeah, it, it's um it's such a learning process. And, and I think that what I alluded to, I remember that post, it's the idea that everyone wants that end result, that $50,000 client, that whatever, some large number, but to get there, you need to go through the steps and it starts with, you know, a client that someone might look at and be like, $500, is that a joke? Are you kidding me? What are you going to do with that? But I remember that, that particular client, I remember I was still at my old law firm. I met someone at a conference down in in um in the US and they reached out to me a few weeks later and they said oh do, is this something you would you would um take on and it was right up my alley it was the work I did but I was so afraid that I was going to offend them that they were going to scoff at whatever it was I was going to present to them as a price and that I was going to you know lose that client forever so I was so scared um eventually a came up with a number and I half half of me was thinking there's no way they're going to accept and it was $500 looking back on it it was so funny but um half of me was like there's no way they're going to accept this this is too much money and the other half was like well might as well go for it how, how am I ever going to get my first client unless I try to get this out of the way and surprisingly then they said yes to me and and I treated that <laughs> I, I took it so seriously <laughs> I spent like six hours seven hours on that and it was looking back it was so simple but i was so afraid because it's it was my baby right my, my first baby and i had to make sure they were taken care of and yeah i spent six hours um then i i was um i remember sending the invoice and, and again even though they had agreed to the price and everything i was still scared and i was like you know here's the invoice trembling as i press send and they paid it with no problem and and from there it was just snowballing right like okay the 500 dollar client was fine Let, let's see next time right if, if it's a bigger matter can i get more and then as you get more and more and you get more comfortable you realize that this is just how business operates and now to to answer a specific thing you said bevel that fifty thousand, like i don't even bat an eye it's it, we know we, we talk about the number with the client up front they expect it i expect it um and and at that level that level of, of client, it's so easy. It's usually sophisticated business people who are, you know, seasoned entrepreneurs. And to get a bill, they, they realize that's a cost of doing business. They see the value of the legal service I'm providing. Um, 
always, 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 I make sure that the, whatever number I present to them is defensible, um, meaning that I feel like not only did I deliver that much value, but I delivered more value than that. So that if I if the bill is fifty thousand, I want to make sure I give at least seventy five thousand, hundred thousand in value, and, and I can have that conversation with them and explain why I believe that's the case. So, but you need to go through the steps, right? You need to um, put yourself out there, get the clients, get a few notches under your belt, and as time goes and you learn what works, learn the type of client that you can attract, learn. Um, the type of work you want to do, that's when you really get into really interesting large numbers and and really things that put your practice into really take it off in the outer space. Yeah, I resonate with a lot of that. Uh, even just thinking about the invoicing, it's something you know I, I struggled with and I've gotten a lot better at. But you know, you're asking someone to pay real money uh, for something you're doing. and and I think not enough lawyers historically have thought about the value the client is getting. You know, it, it always astonished me the confidence these lawyers had in just sending out bills when there had never been a discussion of what the amount would look like other than you know an hourly rate agreed upon. That that, that always shocked me because firstly, as a client, I would never agree to that <laughs> unless I really trusted the person. And secondly, it just to me was a sign of a lack of respect towards the client. Like they're trusting you and you know people not keeping the clients up to date, um, you know, not even giving them a rough estimate, all these sort of things where I remember thinking, wow, like they're almost coming off entitled. Like they believe the client should be bowing down to them. How great am I? They should be so lucky. And I think that's also to some extent how law firms have handled, you know, their younger lawyers. Like you should be so grateful to be working here. And that's obviously changing a lot right now as the market shifts. But I think a lot of the more modern lawyers and especially people like you who clients are really resonating with are taking a different approach, right? They're really focused on providing value and are also worried that they're not providing value and whether or not we're occasionally self-sabotaging is one thing, but I think it allows you to build these really great relationships with clients who know that Josh is the kind of guy who delivers good value. He's not there for the short term. He's not there to make a quick buck. He wants to keep working with me and I'm not going to get an inflated invoice from him that isn't justified. Does that resonate at all, Josh? Well, hundred percent. And, and uh, for some reason, restaurants are on my mind. I, I got to apologize to you guys because like, usually I, I, I think I come up with a bit more sophisticated types of analogies, but Aaron, as you were talking, you were saying like the bill, sometimes it's almost like no human reviews a bill before it goes to the client. And that it, it is repulsive to me. Um, some of the practices I, I hear about, I have a lot of friends who work in house, so they use a lot of external providers. Um, and the kind of stuff that shows up in their invoice that they tell them about is just, it is mind boggling. It's almost as if they want to lose the client. So to my analogy, I was going to say from the restaurant business, if, if you go to a restaurant and there's a mistake and, and something happens, don't you love it when that restaurant takes ownership and says, look, I'm so sorry that this happened. Can we, what, what can we do to make it better? You know, free dessert. Are we going to take, you know, a little bit more off the bill? It's just a, a way of doing business. I feel like, <laughs> I don't want to say old school, but that's the term that's coming to mind. It's almost like I want to do business with this person forever. As long as I can deliver services to a client, I want to keep them forever. So if I want to keep them forever, why would I look at these short term, you know, trying to squeeze every dollar I can? Like if you're charging a client for faxes and, and phone calls, the kind of offensive things that I hear about, it, it's almost like you... You're taking the opposite approach. You're saying, I, I want the transaction, right? I, I'm trying to maximize my dollars from this one interaction. And I don't care that you, you don't come to me the second time, the third time, the fourth time, the fifth time. Whereas if you look, this is a service profession, right? Where you look at what I consider to be the, the best service um, people outside of law, the, the best people who provide service is giving you that experience where... They make sure that you're taken care of at the restaurant. They're making sure that if there is a mistake, they own it and they're making things right. They're always thinking about you as the customer and, and your experience first. And it makes you want to go back and eat at that restaurant so many times. So I think part of me really thinks that um, we need to go back to the roots of, of the profession back when lawyers, before the internet, before all this stuff, I imagine it was just, you know, you would practice law for your friends and people you know in the community. And you wouldn't try to rip off that person. You wouldn't try to nickel and dime them. 
you try to see, okay, what what is this person trying to achieve? I want to make sure I get paid fair compensation because I have bills. I have a business to run. You're not doing charity, but I'm in this for the long run. And I'm here to help you succeed now and in the future. And that way we both win. I love that so much. I, I'll tell you one of the most common questions we get in our cohorts, and we're coaching a lot of people up close in these eight-week sessions, is they're terrified to ask. They're terrified to ask for the sale. They're terrified to you know, really think about this. But you're sort of, the way you're framing it is that, well, if I have this much value to give, why would I be afraid of asking them? Why would I be afraid of you know sending them $50,000 of a bill? Because I've treated them fairly. I've given them more value than they would have gotten from, from $50,000. So I'm, I'm giving them $75,000, 100K of value. I'm charging half of that. And I'm treating them like a real human being. And isn't that quite a concept in today's day and age where uh, it is a lot more transactional. It is a lot more cutthroat and, and it's all about the competition. But one of the interesting things of how you're talking about it is that you don't have to be at a solo practice to try and implement these ideas. If you're at a different firm, you too can kind of take some of these ideas and start using it. And, and you'll be surprised and shocked at how clients respond. You know, one of the things we always tell people to do is talk to your client, ask them what the experience is like to work with other law firms. You'll be surprised at what you find. Um, talk about more than just business. You'll be surprised at what you find. And the results are, you know, for you, you just reached $400,000 in revenues. So that's a huge milestone. This philosophy works. This way of looking at the world through an abundance mindset works. Overcoming your limiting beliefs and actively working on that works. Like this is the real core stuff that makes a lawyer successful in whether they be at a big firm and they're, they're a partner, they got to go out there and build their own practice. Or if you're a solo practitioner and you got to do it on your own, the internal work is exactly the same. How you portray yourself to people is exactly the same. Um, it, was that a fair representation of what, what, what you're talking about? Definitely. Um, I think you can, you can take, you know, I, I like share my thoughts online about be, being a practitioner, being, um, having a small law firm. I, I share my thoughts on it, but I do think they're applicable anywhere you go, whether, whether you're going to, um, ruffle feathers at, at if you work at a law firm, whether you're going to ruffle feathers of other people, that's, you know, that's a separate question because if you're challenging the status quo, there is going to be resistance. But in terms of, if you take the individual lawyer operating a law firm, I do think that you can take a more empathetic approach, uh, an approach that is more long-term um, in nature. And I, I got to tell you, it's like, um, for some reason, I'm thinking of catnip. What is catnip exactly? I don't even know what that is, but it's like an expression that we use. What's like something that attracts, like, it's like it's like bees being attracted to honey. That's a good right. analogy. Like the people feel um, when I interact with them, clients, they feel that I care about them. And that's what, the, you know, the $400,000 number I shared. We could talk about that later, by the way, about the transparency and how I feel like we should talk about money more, which I'm, I'm trying to do more and more of. Um, people feel that when they interact with me. And I, I'm happy to tell you that I've never lost a client because they decided someone else was a better fit for them. I, that has yet to happen. Um, at the outset, sometimes there's, a, there's a, a misfit, whether you know that's because I don't think it can service them or whether they think I'm too expensive. That happens all the time. So don't think I win every client, that every client interaction I get, I lose my fair share for sure. But once, once there is that fit, um, I'm happy to say that, that I've never lost a client who we've gone past that initial fit with. Um, which that I, I'm even more than the $400,000 or whatever number of revenue we come up with. I'm most proud of that, that I'm able to keep the clients that do come in the door. And because it, it, remember law, as far as I know, no one has a fixed term contract, right? This isn't like your cell phone bill. Um, people can leave whenever they want. They're not locked in for any period of time, right? The engagement letter says you can leave whenever you want. On your way out, you do have to pay us what we're owed, but you can leave whenever you want. So I have to earn their trust. I have to earn their business with every single interaction. And it's such an honor for me when they decide to stay because they can leave whenever they want. So that's really the real metric of success. 
that I measure um, my impact by is, am I keeping the people that I do have happy? And how can I use that to maybe spread the word and attract even more clients who, who would also um, resonate with those same values that I have? You made such an important point, and I don't want listeners to skip this. You talked about these soft things like feeling. You talked about what kind of rapport do I have with my client? How, how much do we trust one another? What's the, what's the feeling like? And this is such an important point. Quite often, lawyers think that people are buying just on logic. They're just buying on, on, on pros and cons list. But here's a point that we've said so, so often. People buy on emotion and they justify with logic later on. And you have really tapped into that. You have found your niche. You have really gone, you know, going all into just a single niche. And you know that these, th these people are my tribe and I'm going to do whatever I can to earn their trust and help them and contribute and, and provide a lot of value to them. I know that even when we were talking a couple of months back, there was this, you were struggling between being general and niching down. And I'm wondering if you can talk to what made you want to niche down, what made you want to go deeper and more focused, because a lot of our listeners, they really do feel that, well, the more general I am, the more kind of open and, and broad I am, the more people will be drawn to me. But your experience was quite different. The more specific and niche down you got, the more you, you were able to attract opportunities. So tell us a bit about that, that journey as well. Yeah, I love what you said, just to, to add my thought to something you just said, Devil, and then I'll answer the question about niching down versus general. The the There is a huge misconception that in business, for some reason, that emotions are out the door, that we're all of a sudden, we're, we're, we have emotions in our personal lives, but when it comes to business, uh, emotions don't exist, right? We're all rational, um, logical thinkers, and I, I, you know, you and I both take an interest in sales and marketing and psychology. We both know that's not true, right? In business, emotions play such a big impact and, and trying to read the emotional temperature of someone, trying to figure out what exactly it is that they're looking for. Um, that really is, is the art, I think, of practicing law, like trying to really understand, okay, the client, let me give you an example, the, a new client who's starting their own business, right? They come to me and they want to incorporate, they want to have a shareholders agreement. They're saying all the kind of logical stuff that they need. But I'm always thinking, okay, it's their first time. Are they scared about what they're doing right now? Do they think that I'm going to rip them off because this is their first large interaction with a lawyer? Um, are they scared that they're going to, you know, it, are they going from a job to starting their own business and they're really scared about that whole journey? And so I'm trying to understand from what their emotional uh, makeup is so that I can better tailor my services for them. So I think emotions are undervalued in business. They're, they're constantly there and we need to spend more time thinking about them. About niching down versus um, being general, niche is the way to go. And I've changed my mind on this radically. Um, I used to think general is the way to go, that you wanna serve many people and kind of be the jack of all trades, but it's actually counter, counterintuitive now that, now that I've spent some time thinking about it and read about it, it, it's the wrong approach because people come with a certain problem that they want to solve, right? I, I just gave you an example of uh, a new client who came in and wants to start their own business. They're trying to start their own business. So they're not going to be the only client who wants to start their own business. It's going to be a lot of people who, who, who have that same desire, that same goal. So how do I best serve that client, the new, the client who was starting a business for the first time? I need to have repetitions with that client. I need to go deeper into that client psychology, maybe do 10 of those clients, have 10 of those engagements. And by the 10th time, I'm going to know exactly what they need. And then you, you build processes to really streamline the process, right? So maybe you have an intake form up front, the client fills out on their own time about what they want to accomplish in terms of the structure of their corporation, let's say. And then you have the documents prepared and you offer a more guided end-to-end -end approach. And because you've done 10 repetitions with that client, you're going to be so much better because you you have the time, the experience, and you've been doing it so many times. Whereas if you have, you know, one shareholders agreement and you have one M&A um, and then you do real estate and wills on the side, I, I know there's a tension to maximize revenue, but if you're able to get past that and really niche down and really understand the, the problems that the, that people commonly face among a particular industry, among a particular type of client, 
I think that's going to be the most lucrative approach. I used to make fun of people who practice in one very narrow area to give you an example of like how I've changed my mind and how wrong I was. There used to be people who practice like dental law, right? Exclusively. All we do is do law for dentists. And I used to make fun of those people. How, you know, really that's all they do. Ha 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 ha. Right. Like laughing with my friends and stuff like that. But now I look at that. I'm like, that's so smart because you understand dentists to a depth that I never could. If I get a file from them once every two years, you know, dentists thoroughly, you understand their problems, you speak their language and you're able to build a business that is lucrative for you, the practitioner, but also very valuable for your client because you get them so well. And the more time I, I spend thinking about this, the more it makes sense to niche down. And every time I think I've gotten to the bottom, I think I, I need to niche down some more. That's how much I believe in it. I love it. Uh, niching down really is the way to go. Um, a lot of people are afraid to niche down, but you know, to use your restaurant analogy a little bit more, it, it's the marketplace is out there and you've got one plate of spaghetti for five bucks, another plate of spaghetti for 15 and another restaurant, you've got the same plate of spaghetti for $50. And if you were to put them side by side, they might look the same. They might, you know, even taste the same, but what sets them really apart? It's the story you tell them. It's just understanding the consumer psychology, understanding the client psychology. What kind of environment are they operating in? What's the restaurant? Is it a fancy restaurant? Is it more like a, like a little diner down, down, like in a hole. What kind of place is it? All that stuff helps you distinguish what sets a $5 plate of spaghetti apart from a $50 plate of spaghetti. And having a strong USP or a unique selling proposition helps you cut through the marketplace. Because right now, you are there are three plates of spaghetti with different prices, and the consumer or the client really can't decide, well, what, what sets one apart from the other? You need to tell that story. You need to really be focused and say, well, here's why this plate of spaghetti is $50. Otherwise, the client just isn't going to pick up. And that's one of the first activities we try and make people do in our cohorts. Figure out your unique selling proposition. Here's what I do. Here's what I do not do. And let me go do a real deep dive into the psychology of my client. And, and talking about psychology, I got to ask you this. You have been so open about your numbers and your struggles, your, your problems. And, and your successes on LinkedIn. What made you want to embrace that radical level of transparency? Yeah, good, great question. Um, and thank you for using the restaurant analogy. I just love the, I love simple analogies, right? I love things I think that we're all also pretty hungry. We're also pretty <laughs> hungry. <laughs> we're doing this it's at about, lunchtime, so. It's, a, it's about that time. But I love simple analogies because what's true in, in other industries is also true of, of law. And I think there's lessons to be learned that, that we should apply, right? Like the, the plate of spaghetti, like there's different price points. What causes someone to go to one versus another? I think those are all, we could all learn things from that that would be applicable to what we do and how we can provide value to clients. So psychology and, and LinkedIn, I had a lot of trouble with this. I, I wrestle with what I post and the content and how transparent I would get. Luckily, I had people... Um, behind the scenes who I was interacting with that, that let me, let's take a concrete example. I, I posted about revenue um, not too long ago, a couple of months ago, I think, because it was my year end and it was a you know, right time, ripe time for reflecting back. And that's when I posted that $400,000 number. And I was consulting with my friends and saying, look, I'm thinking about posting this because I don't think this is talked about enough. There's a lot of generalities about this kind of stuff, but nothing concrete, nothing specific. No one's sharing actually what the, the journey's like, right? Like, what is it like growing from a $500 client to a $400,000 book of business? What is it like hiring? What is it like losing someone who you really like, a, a team member? That happened to me for the first time a, co a couple months ago. Um, all these real, authentic, true stories from the front lines, I feel like that was a angle that I had that I could potentially share, not knowing whether people were going to be interested in that. So the $400,000 revenue thing was, I, I really hesitated and, and I wrote it and kind of put it in my drafts. I, I looked at it again, put it away because it, there's a lot of vulnerability that there wasn't sharing that number because I know people who work in large law firms who easily, easily, easily um, have a book of business or work do the legal work over a million dollars. And so I was thinking about them. I was like, oh, what is, what is $400,000 compared to some of my peers 
who, you know, they make more than that per year, right? Like they pull out 400,000. I'm talking about revenue. We're not talking about what I pull out. We're just talking about revenue. So how can I, with my measly $400,000, this is how I was thinking, the kind of self-talk you have that is brutal. Um, why should I post this? But then eventually um, I was convinced by my support group to say, hey, just put it out there. Like you feel like this is something that should be talked about more and you want to share this part of your experience, just put it out there and see what happens. So I swallowed my my ego, my pride, and I said, let me just put this out there. And it, the the reception was so um, it was so impactful, I think, because not many people talk about it. And people like the openness because it's not something that's that's talked about right money is the kind of like the the secret in our profession like we all know that that that's really how business works and how we get paid but as a profession overall lawyers are very very hesitant to talk about money and i wanted to be different in that way and, and show people that this is what i'm going through this is what i've achieved um and I and I had other things in mind too about writing about how you don't need a private school background or be golfing or be whining and dining. And so it, I I I felt this need to to share um, this my my experience without really knowing whether people were going to like it. And over time, as I shared more and more, and I got the feedback both publicly and behind the scenes that that this was filling a an area that people wanted to know more about. And now I've just gone completely all in talk about niching down i've niched down completely to talking about solos and small law firms it, it it it's taking me so long to realize it but it really is my true calling and i love the hashtag you use you say arming the rebels it's almost like you're in like a star wars universe and you're you're part of the, the rebellion fighting against the empire and uh, uh obviously we don't want the destruction of the empire big law has its uh you know place in the whole ecosystem but it's about arming the rebels arming people who want to do things a little bit differently. Um, and perhaps by creating that undercurrent of change at small firms, uh, you can impact some change at big firms as well and just change the culture of law altogether. So this has been such an interesting conversation. I'm curious, here's a question we ask a lot of people. What's a book, what's a resource that you'd recommend people read, check out, get more kind of, you know, you talk about introspection or, or more ideas from, um, I know the two of us work together. I know that you have a support group yourself. Uh, but if there are some books or podcasts or, or some audio programs that you think people would benefit from, what would they be? Yeah, E-Myth, which I posted about today, like I said, foundational, foundational reading. Um, that was I was lucky enough to get, have that book um, recommended to me. And that just, we don't know this stuff, right? Like if you go to business school, I imagine they teach you this stuff. But no one taught... Aaron and I, well, actually, Aaron, you went to Ivy, right? Never mind. You know this stuff already, but I didn't know. I have a poli sci background. I went to law school. I didn't know the difference between the work a business produces and a business itself, right? It's like the difference between a McDonald's hamburger and McDonald's as a business unit. So it was revolutionary, rev revelatory for me to get that book and engage with it. Um, it's, Regardless of yeah, sol solo or small law firm, I just think understanding business, if you have any sort of interaction with businesses or clients, it's good to know um, good to know what they're going through. Um, we haven't talked about that, right? Like how I use my business experience being a, a small law firm practitioner to get clients. That that's a message that's resonating so well as a business owner to a business owner, how I market that message. Um, so that's the one that really comes to mind. Um, in terms of introspection. Um, this is going to be a weird one, I, probably unexpected. There's a book called The Artist's Way. I don't have you, either of you heard of it's it. It's it's brilliant. It's brilliant. It's um, Julia Cameron, right? Yeah, Julia Cameron. Yeah. Um, it, it it's transformed my life, actually, and and that's probably me underselling it. It and I know Artist's Way. What does that have to do with lawyers, right? How how could it possibly relate? But I really truly think that that law being a practitioner is a creative endeavor. Um, not, it's not as obvious as painting would be or dancing would be or cooking is, but it, it, there is such a creative element to practicing law and it's unleashing our creativity, right? Unleashing the inner artist in all of us. And that book, along with what the, the implementations that book suggests as part of our daily practice about journaling and, and taking care of ourselves and, 
and making sure that we as an individual are 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 maintained and just to re really foster our creative growth that has been the book like between emith and artist way i think that's like 80 percent of what i what i would ever recommend because those are like I, I would take those books to me to an island if i was like you know cast away for five years and i would just reread them over and over again because i'm that convinced they're so valuable beautiful i i love the artist's way i've used those morning pages as a daily practice myself and um i love this new angle the lawyer as a creative the lawyer as an artist because that's really what you are you're creating every something new every single day as a business owner you're creating something new every single day even if you're a partner you are in charge of your of your unit and you're creating something new every single day and a lot more people could benefit from looking at their profession as a creative not as a suit quote unquote so if people want to get a hold of you what's the best way of getting a hold of you yeah linkedin for sure um josh calderon on linkedin um that is the easiest way though i do tell people for some reason linkedin tries to charge people to send me messages um but i'm gonna get better at accepting requests uh, but that is the best way if you if you if someone wants to reach me and they can't message me because LinkedIn is trying to charge them to send you a message, then just comment on, on, on a post I make and I'll add you and that's how we can interact. That's the best way of reaching me. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. This is an excellent conversation because it got into not just the, the tangible stuff of making sales and all of that stuff, but the psychology of it all, getting your first client, the actual inner voices that you have to deal with, the creative act of you creating something from scratch yourself. Um, it was an absolutely fascinating conversation. We have to have you on another time to get into more of these mental blocks, limiting beliefs that we talked about. But for now, thank you so much for being on this call. And we'll put all the stuff you said in the show notes. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. Really appreciate the invite. You've been listening to the Build Your Book podcast. For show notes of this episode and previous episodes, go to buildyourbook.org slash podcast. Our mission is to change the culture of law practice with these conversations. Please help us in this by sharing this podcast with your friends and colleagues and help us get these ideas to more listeners by leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference. It takes less than 30 seconds and helps us bring on more great guests for you. Thanks for listening. Take care.